0: This is the Moira Pentecostal Church podcast, providing you with sound biblical teaching. We hope you will be encouraged, challenged, and blessed by this ministry. Uh, To the Word of God this morning, guess where we are today. I think you could guess we are in Exodus uh, chapter 18. Exodus chapter 18. Now before we even begin to read uh, into chapter 18, uh, I need to tell you, because it wouldn't be just obvious if you were just reading through Exodus sort of casually. You know, if you're in one of those yearly planner readers and you're just reading through it, this wouldn't be so obvious, but it's important. Exodus 18 is not chronologically correct. It's not in its right place. You uh, know, we have already read in the, this series uh, from chapter 1 all the way through to chapter 17. And uh, almost exclusively, it's... Uh, Sequential: The events are happening one after the other. And you can look at the timing of it. You can look at the dates. You can look at the places. And it's easy to see how the events just occurred. And Moses wrote them chronologically. But when you come to chapter 18, he didn't do that. Remember, Moses is writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And so there's a reason, which I'll give you in a moment, why he didn't do this. But when you finish chapter 17, as we did last week, we were in Rephidim. But when you turn over the page of chapter 18, suddenly you're at Sinai. And we know that because Jethro, his father-in-law, and his wife, Moses' wife, Sipporah, and his two sons, come out to meet Moses as they were coming back from Egypt. And they met, and it says in verse 5, at the Mount of God, which is Sinai. And we also know it because, as we'll see as we study this this morning, that Moses is giving advices and counsel and wisdom uh, to the people who are coming to him uh, for counsel. And he's sharing with them the law of God and the ordinances of God. Well, at Rephidim, they hadn't got that yet. They got that at, Moses got that at Sinai. And so the question then arises, well, why then did he include it here? Well, probably the reason, we can't be 100% sure, but probably the reason is, is because when you go chapter 19, 20 and beyond all the way to chapter 40, which is the end of Exodus, you'll find it's to do with the law of God. And everything relating to the law of God and the laws of God, the ordinances of God and building of the tabernacle and the high priest, the garments they had to wear and all that stuff. And that leads lovely into Leviticus where that is, is amplified and expanded more and more. And so before, if you were reading through this, before you get to all that, then Moses, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, decided to put this these events that we're going to read in chapter 18 here before we get to all of that because there's no natural place to put what we're going to read in chapter 18 in the middle of the rest of the chapters because it's all about the law the building of the tabernacle the high priest garments and so the best place to actually put us here the other reason why it's good it's here is because of what it says uh, to us and what happened to Moses and Jethro, and what followed from that. Uh, And so really, chapter 18 is about leadership. It's about leadership. And uh, so whether you're a church leader or you're a leader in your your job or your career or your school or university or your home or within the community or a politician, it doesn't matter what kind of leadership role you have. There's something for us to learn here, which is very, very important to be a leader. And so with that caveat, let's then read Exodus chapter 18. And Jethro, the priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law, heard of all that God had done for Moses and for Israel, his people, that the Lord brought Israel out of Egypt. Now, obviously Jethro, a Midianite, is living in Midian. And the word had spread far and wide. It seems like the, what had happened in Egypt uh, by God through Moses uh, was just spreading like wildfire all over that whole region. And so it was, a, you know, we would say the talk of the town it was the talk of the whole country. In fact, it was beyond the borders of their country. That was the talk of the whole region. It was so mighty and powerful and, and exciting and wonderful, the things that God had done in Egypt to deliver his people uh, from that house of bondage, as it were. And so, verse 2, Then Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, took Sipporah, Moses' wife, after he had sent her back with her two sons, of whom the name of the one was Gershom, for he said, I've been a stranger in a foreign land. The name of the other was Eliezer, for he said, The God of my father was my help, and delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. And Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, came with his sons and his wife to Moses in the wilderness, where he was encamped at the mountain of God. Now, he had said to Moses, I, your father-in-law Jethro, I'm coming to you with your wife and her two sons with her. Now, remember how that uh, whenever Moses was 40 years, uh, Jethro's son-in-law in the wilderness looking after his father-in-law's sheep. And how that God called him at the burning bush and told him to go to Egypt, confront Pharaoh, let my people go and how he left with his wife Sipporah and his two uh, sons and when they started to make their journey to Egypt then they stopped and Moses told them to go back, to go back to her father and uh, to their grandfather and to stay there while he went on to Egypt so now he's coming back, Jethro hears and he's bringing his wife and his two sons out to meet him at the Mount of God at Sinai in the wilderness, that's simply what that is saying, now what follows from this is just a beautiful beautiful touching sensitive moment as these two meet no doubt when moses met sipporah his wife and his two sons no doubt there was lots of hugging and kissing and embracing and, and 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 just a wonderful time of conversation but the bible doesn't go into that doesn't talk about that but it talks about the conversation between moses and jethro Because this chapter, as I said, really is about leadership. And here are two leaders. So Moses went out to meet his father-in-law, bowed down and kissed him. And they asked each other about their well-being and they went into the tent. And Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake. And all the hardship that had come upon them on the way and how the Lord had delivered them. Now what a moment that must have been for Jethro, because he's been hearing second hand, third hand, fourth hand, tenth hand, all the events of Egypt. Now he's got the opportunity to sit down and hear it firsthand, the unvarnished truth. So that nothing would have been embellished that he had heard. Nothing would have been too outlandish. In fact, it's even better than what he heard. And now he's going to hear it straight from the horse's mouth, could we say, to use that phrase. And it's going to be wonderful. And I'm sure they sat to the wee small hours in Moses' tent, just sharing and talking. And I, I'm sure Jethro's eyes was out like an organ stops listening and his ears would be pricked up. Because he could hardly believe what he's hearing when Moses would tell him all the details of what God had done. And the hardships and what they had to face with the Amalekites and so forth. So it was a wonderful, wonderful moment, particularly for Jethro just to hear firsthand. Then Jethro rejoiced for for all the good which the Lord had done for Israel, whom he had delivered out of the hand of the Egyptians. And Jethro said, Blessed be the Lord who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of Pharaoh, and who has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all the gods, for in this very thing in which they behaved proudly, he was above them. Then Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, took a burnt offering and other sacrifices to offer to God, and Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses' father-in-law before God. Jethro was a, a, a priest of the Midianites. He was the priest of the Midianites. But Midian was a son of Abraham to Keturah, his second wife. And it would seem to be that some of Abraham's feet. The one true God had been passed down through a line and had come to Jethro and he had embraced that. Perhaps didn't know it fully as much as Abraham did, certainly not as much as Moses now does, but certainly enough that he would worship the one true and living God. And he offered sacrifices a priest would do unto God, and Moses and Aaron and the elders of Israel all enjoined in that, so that would let us know that the sacrifice was good because they wouldn't have enjoined in a pagan sacrifice. So here are these two jethro the priest of midian and moses the mighty lawgiver and the emancipator deliverer of israel and the prophet of god and here they are sitting down talking to each other as equals now there's something about humility i think it's just is not just desired in a leader but as a must in a leader there's got to be humility Uh, And I see humility in both these. Uh, First of all, in Jethro. You know, whenever Moses was 40 years with Jethro, all Moses was, apart from being a son-in-law, was a simple shepherd uh, to Jethro's flocks. Now, we don't know how many was in his flocks. There might have been 50. There might have been 100. There might have been 200 sheep in his flock. But when Moses comes back from Egypt, Moses now is the shepherd of two million people in his flock, the flock of God. So that's a big change. And Jethro, if he had been so inclined, he could have felt envious and jealous at Moses' success. Because in forty years all he knew was he's just a shepherd. He's my son in law and I love him, but he's just a shepherd. But he comes back and he's the mighty man of God. The whole region is talking about him. He's a prophet of God. He's hearing directly from God himself. He's been up the mountain Sinai and God spoke to him face to face. Here is a mighty man of God. And Jethro is not envious, he's not jealous. He's rejoicing in Moses' success. And it takes humility for a leader to rejoice in somebody else's success, particularly if their success is far, far greater than your success. Let me tell you something about church leaders and its human nature. Whenever church leaders get together, whether it's a conference or a convention or meetings they're talking about, inevitably, inevitably, it comes up, how many goes to your church? I've I've seen it a thousand times, uh, and the the implication is <laughs> is the many that, how many goes to your church. We will judge you your ministry by how many. If you're a pastor, by how many goes to your church, which is completely wrong, of course. But that's that's human nature. Does that you see? Uh, a pastor friend of mine one time he was <laughs> he was at a, a conference. And uh, he says there was pastors from all the nations were there, and he says uh, one of the one of the breakout sessions, uh, like a seminar. He says I was sitting beside this this little Indian pastor, and he says to tell you the truth he didn't look as if he had tomans to spend. So he says we 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 chatted and we had struck up a little little friendship, and we were talking, and he says at some point he says I heard myself saying this, <laughs> how many goes to your church? <laughs> And he says, the Indian pastor thought for a minute, he says, well, I think at the last count, about 5,000. <laughs> and he says, in that moment, I thought, oh, please, God, don't let him ask him when he comes to my church. <laughs> and he says, I swore ever that never to ask that question again. But you see, it's a prideful thing comes up. If I get more coming to my church than your church, then God's used me better than you, you see. That's, and it's wrong. It's totally and utterly wrong. But there's none of that here. Sure, there's not. Jethro is just delighted. He's rejoicing. He's pleased. He's happy for the success of Moses because it's God's success. And Moses could have come back with an attitude. Well, you know, you're my father-in-law, and you just put me looking after sheep. And, hey, I, I'm the man of God of power for the are today. Look at me. I'm the prophet of God. I, you know, look, everybody's talking about me. Look what I have done. Look at my rod. And he, he, but he didn't. It was all honor to God. He gave all the praise and honor to God. This is what God has done in Egypt. Yes, he used me, and yes, he used that rod, but really, truthfully, it's all of God's grace and love and mercy that has used me at all. And that's humility is, is, a, is a lovely quality. Let me, let me give you a couple of examples. Over the years, uh, I've been in the position of meeting some of the, the big names uh, through my former church. I remember one time, uh, my former pastor invited this big name to come to Belfast from California. He had preached in his church. And uh, this man, he's long since gone to be with the Lord, but at that time he had the most watched Christian television program in the United States. It was beamed all over the world on TVN to, I don't know, many nations. And so he was a household name. And so he invited him over here, and I was tasked with getting a camera crew together because he wanted to shoot some footage in Belfast for his program back home. So I got a... It was simple. It was a cameraman and a sound recordist. And so we drove to Royal Avenue in Belfast and we got out of the car and we set up. And the cameraman didn't know him from Adam, didn't know who in the world he was, other than he was a preacher from America. And he got him to stand with his back towards the city hall because that that would be a good... You know, it's an iconic building, center of Belfast. What better building to show off? So that was fine. And he got him to stand there, and he took a few steps back, set up his camera, and he said to him, now he says, here's what I want you to do. I says, I want you to talk right into the lens, as if you're just talking to one person. And he says, at one point, I'm going to walk backwards, and you follow me, and you just keep talking. (laughs) And then he said these words to the man. He says, uh have you ever done anything like this before? <laughs> and I thought to myself, you have no idea who you're talented. <laughs> and I wonder, what is this man going to say? He could have said, do you not know who I am? Do you not know that I've got the biggest TV program in all of America, Christian TV? Do you not know there's hundreds of millions of people watching watch me every week? He could have patronized him. he could have made a fool of him, but he didn't. And I listened, and he just says one word. He says... Have you ever done anything I like guess before, and he says, "Occasionally," <laughs> and I thought, "Now there, there is humility," a- and it pleased me. Now the man's theology wasn't great, I have to say, by the way. <laughs> that didn't please me at all. But just as a human being, he had the opportunity to make that man look foolish, but he chose humility. "Occasionally," he said, and I thought, mm, "That's nice." And then I remember another occasion. And I'll tell you this man's name. His name is T.L. Osborne. Some of you older saints may remember him. T.L. Osborne was to India what Reinhardt Bunke was to Africa. And his crusades, him and his wife Daisy, they didn't count them by the thousands. They counted them by the acre. Literally by the acre. I mean, there was just uh, as far as the eye could see all kinds of signs and wonders and miracles never laid hands on people never had prayer lines or too many he just simply preached the gospel thousands could see him prayed a simple prayer hundreds of people was getting healed all over the place of all kinds of diseases in fact he spoke on here when the church was the other way around years ago but in our church in belfast uh he was speaking one evening and he and the pastor was in what we'd call the vestry, a little side room, and the door was ajar. It was open maybe about a foot and a half. And I just happened to be standing at the door. And in walks, and comes over to me, Big Bobby. Now, Big Bobby was as wide as he was tall. He was a big unit. He really was. And he was an ex-merchant seaman, hard, hard drinker, womanizer, all, all the things that went with his, with his career, but he got wonderfully saved, gloriously saved, and was part of the worship team because he was a musician as well. So he just sort of spoke to me for just for a few moments and then went on to get involved in the worship team. And I heard T.L. Osborne say to my pastor, who's the big guy? Because he he's kind of striking, look, you know. Who's the big guy? And tattoos everywhere. And Who's the big guy? So he told him who Big Bobby was, just what I've just told you. And then he said... I'm going to invest some time in him tonight. And I thought, oh, that'll be interesting to see how that works out. Because the place was packed that night, and everybody wanted to meet the great man, you see. Shake his hand. So right at the end of the service, whenever the worship team was playing the last song, and they were starting to step down, T.L. Osborne, sitting in the front row, he had finished speaking long ago, he steps up on the platform and grabs Big Bobby and takes him over to the piano, and they both of them sit down, and they both of them start to play together. And for the next 20 minutes, he sat with Big Bobby, put his arm around him, and spoke into his life, and prayed for him. He invested some time in him. And everybody was waiting to shake the hand of the great Mahan, but he didn't care about the rest. He wanted to invest in Big Bobby. And I thought, now that's a bit of humility, isn't it? And let me tell you something else about T.L. Osborne. A friend of mine, not a pastor, just a friend, he was at a conference in England. There were various speakers from different places, some well known names, some not so known. And T.L. was there. And he says, after it was over, there was everybody had like, a book stand somewhere. So he says, I bought a book of one of the other speakers. He says, I really enjoyed him. So I bought his book. And I saw him, the author, talking to T.L. over in the corner. So I thought, it would be nice if I could get him to sign my book. So he says, I went over to where they were standing, and being respectful, I stood about maybe, a bit, maybe about 10 paces back, maybe less, maybe five paces back. And, but so that he would see me with my book, and he says, he, he, he kind of looked around, and I could see him looking at me and looking, looking at his book I had in my hand, and he says, then he quickly just turned his back to me and kept talking to TL. So he says, again, being respectful, he's having conversation, I don't want to butt in, I'll wait till they're finished, but he says it was going on and going on and going on, and he says, I had to go. So he says, I moved over to the left a little bit, just to catch his eye again, to let him know I was still standing, and he says, I could see him looking around, looking at me, looking at at his book in my hand, and he says, then he he turned again, and kept on talking, and just by that, he says, TL looked over his shoulder I looked at the book in his hand, and I heard him say, Brother, there's a gentleman there who has bought your book. I think he wants you to sign it. You sign it, and then we'll finish our conversation. (laughs) You see, humility. And, And when you get humility in a leader, it's a good thing. And both these leaders were humble people for different reasons. They could have been proud. One could have been envious. One could have been boastful. But were neither. They were simply humble because they wanted to give God all the glory. Then Jethro rejoiced for all the good which the Lord had done for Israel, whom he had delivered out of the hand of the Egyptians. And Jethro said, blessed be the Lord who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of Pharaoh. And then they made their sacrifices. So humility is a wonderful, wonderful Quality in any kind of leadership, whether that's you as a boss in your work. I know that you've got to make decisions, you've got to give orders, you've got to run things. But let me tell you, humility goes a long way. Uh, I've written down a couple of this little things in this sheet that I do for the home group. Spurgeon says, we have plenty of people nowadays who would not kill a mouse without publishing it in the Gospel Gazette. Samson killed a lion and said nothing about it. The Holy Spirit finds modesty so rare that he takes care to record it. Say much of what the Lord has done for you, but say little of what you have done for the Lord. St. Bernard of Clairvaux said, it is, not a great, it is not a great thing to be humble when you're brought low, but be humble when you're praised is a great and rare attainment. And then I like this. A group of British tourists were visiting the house of Beethoven. Beethoven or Beethoven? Beethoven. The great composer where he spent his last years. They came to the special room, the conservatory, where his piano sat. The guide said rather quietly to the group, and here is the master's piano. And one thoughtless young woman pushed her way from the back of the room all the way up, sat down at the bench and began to play one of Beethoven's sonatas and paused and said to the guide, I suppose a lot of people enjoy playing this piano. Well, miss, the guide said, "Ignatia Paderewski was here last summer with a group of, and some wanted him to play. And his answer was, no, I cannot. I am not worthy. You see, there's a difference, isn't it, in humility? And so that's the first lesson. Secondly, verse 13. And so it was on the next day that Moses sat to judge the people. And people stood before Moses from morning until evening. So when Moses' father-in-law all that he did for the people he said What is this thing that you're Doing for the people Why do you alone sit And all the people stand before you From morning on to evening Ah So the next day Early As the sun was rising Jethro went out of his tent And he looks over and there's Moses Could we say at his desk and a line of people stretching like one of those Disney queues. If you've ever been in a Disney queue, you know what a queue is. Lined up all over between the bushes and the trees, all standing waiting to talk to Moses. And Jethro says, what in the world are you doing? What is all this about? I've never seen the like of this. And so Moses said to his father-in-law, because the people came to me to inquire of God. When they have a difficulty, they come to me, and I judge between one and another, and I make known the statutes of God and his laws. So Moses said, it's a no-brainer. They come to me. I hear from God. Why wouldn't they come to me? And so they come to me. I give them the statutes and the laws of God. If there's arguments between them as families or between them as mates or between them as whatever and then they come to me they need wisdom they may be wondering about their future or their past so they come to me and i dispense wisdom from the lord to them that's what it's about <laughs> so moses father-in-law said to him the thing that you do is not good <laughs> Both you and these people who are with you will surely wear yourselves out, for this thing is too much for you, and you're not able to form it by yourself. (laughs) Whoa, hold on a minute here, Jethro. Do you realize who you're speaking to? You're speaking to the man who hears from God. You're speaking to the man that God speaks to for the whole nation. You're speaking to the mega church pastor. Before there ever was a term megachurch, Moses had it. The church in the wilderness was two million strong, and he was a senior pastor. And Jethro, you're saying what you're doing is wrong? (laughs) Now, understand that Jethro is not criticizing. Moses had enough criticism. He got that from the two million people since their journey started, and he's going to get it in the next 40 years. But this was an observation, and even if it was criticism, it was constructive. It was it was aimed to help Moses. We'll show you that in a moment, and to help the people. So he said, the thing that you do is not good. You're going to wear yourself out and you're going to wear the people out. You can't sit here all day, every day from morning to night doing this and the people can't be standing all day, every day from morning. Not two million of them, of course, but every day there would be a big, big crowd wanting to get some answers. Then he says, listen now to my voice and I will give you counsel and God will be with you. Ha huh. it takes a big man. It takes a humble man to be able to take good advice, and this was good advice. This was for Moses' good. It was for the people's good. Both you and these people are with you. They surely wear them out. But this thing is just too much for you. You're not able to do it all by yourself. Listen to my voice. I'll give you something to help you counsel and God will be with you. Stand before God for the people so that you may bring the difficulties to God and you shall teach them the statutes and the law and show them the way in which they must walk and the work they must do. Now, just stop there. In verse 17, he says, the thing that you do is not good. Moses had just told him, in verse 15 and 16 exactly what he was doing and he says the thing you're doing is not good but then he goes to give him advice and what does he do he tells him he reiterates the very thing that moses said the exact same thing look at it stand before god for the people that you may bring the difficulties to God. Well, that's what he was doing. That's what Moses told him he was doing. And you shall teach them statutes and the laws and show them the way in which they must walk and the work they must do. That's exactly what Moses was doing. That's exactly what Moses told him. So isn't it, in fact, that what he was doing was wrong? It was the way he was going about it was wrong. That's the point that Jethro's trying to get to. Because Jethro said exactly what Moses said, no different. They come to you for advice from God. You're giving it to them. Wonderful. Keep doing that. But you're going to have to do it differently. You're going to have to change the way you're doing it. That's what he's saying. Moreover, you shall select from all the people, able men such as fear God, men of truth, hating covetousness, And place such over them to be rulers of thousands, rulers of hundreds, rulers of fifties, and rulers of tens, and let them judge the people at all times, then it will be that a very great matter will be that every great matter they shall bring to you, but every small matter they shall themselves shall judge. So it will be easier for you, for they will bear the burden with you. If you do this thing And God so commands you, then you will be able to endure, and all this people will also go to their place in peace. Ah. So, he's simply saying, what you're doing is right, but you're going about it all the wrong way, and you're going to burn yourself out, and you're going to burn the people out. So, enlist some help. Now, he had 70 elders. But he says, you need much more. You need people who'll take care of a 1,000, somebody will take care of 100, some 50, some 10, depending on their abilities, that means. Some will, some will be good with 10, but don't give them a 1,000. It's too much for them. Some will be great with 50, don't even give them a 100. So if those who are good with 50, don't give them 10. They're capable of more than that. So you work out who you think among yourselves can do this. Get them involved. So you're not dealing with all the little nitty-gritty stuff every single day, it'll burn you out. You deal with the big issues, let them deal with the smaller issues. What you're doing is good and it's right, but you need to do it differently. You need to make it easier for yourself. Now sometimes that's a hard lesson for leaders to learn. Because we get the feeling, the harder it is, the better it is, because then God's more glorified the harder I work. But Jethro says, make it easier for yourself. Don't work harder, work smarter. <coughs> There's lots of people could do what you're doing today in all this little nitty-gritty stuff. You don't have to fill with that. There's people to do that. You deal with the big issues. In the New Testament, in Acts chapter 6, Now, in those days, when the number of the disciples was multiplying, there arose a complaint against the Hebrews by the Hellenists, the Greek-speaking Jews, that is, because their widows were neglected in the daily distribution. Then the twelve summoned the multitude of the disciples and said, It is not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And then they chose ones to deal with those other issues. Because Peter said, listen, folks, we've got to pray and we've got to seek God's word. We could do that. But if we do that, we're gonna neglect this. And the most important thing Peter says is for us is prayer and the word of God. That's our job to do that. You can do that stuff, we'll do this. And that's another lesson that leaders have got to learn. And we haven't quite all learned it yet. And I haven't quite all learned that yet either. I'll let you know. Because my tendency is to get stuck in because I did it for years. There's not a job in this church that I haven't done in the past because I never would let anybody do something I wasn't prepared to do myself. Now, that may sound wonderful and great, but the reality is, if I'm doing all that stuff, I'm leaving something else aside that I should be doing even more. So over the years, you have to learn. Now, at the beginning, at the start, we didn't have anybody. So you had to do it. You had no choice. But it didn't stay that way because one by one, two by two, people came alongside. I couldn't lead worship if you'd give me a million pounds. I just, I'm not very good musically. I can't play an instrument. I can sing a wee bit, but I'm, you know. And I had to do it at the start. Dear help the few folk that came at that time. It must have been rough on them. <laughs> I sang in the key of Yale. <laughs> but I had to do it. Give out the hymn books, watch the toilets, press the floor, sing a cappella take the offer and count it, bank it, do all, everything, the whole lot. Because I had nobody telling me that was it. But then one by one, two by two, couples came, individuals came. And now, I was counting the other night in my head and I was thinking about this, and now there's at least, at least 50 plus people who's involved to some capacity in the church doing something to make this church run. Because you see, when you come on Sunday morning, everything's set up, the worship teams are here. People's at the doors. People's doing things. And, but if they didn't do that, what kind of a church would we have? But those people are good at doing that. And, they, and thank God we've got them to do this. And that's what keeps the church going. And so we have to learn to delegate. Chuck Swindle said one time he was doing a leadership conference. And it was all church leaders was there, obviously. So he says, one of the things I asked them to do was take out your keys out of your pocket and hold them up. So he says, they took their keys out of their pockets and held them up. Now he says, count the many keys you've got. If you have too many keys, you're not delegating. And he says, there were some of them were standing that could hardly get them out of their pockets. There's not many keys on it. Too many keys, you're not delegating. You don't need all those keys. There's somebody else could take that key, you don't need it. My former pastor never had keys of the church, ever. Never had keys. he just turned up and everybody was there and everybody had a go and he, he just did he refused just to take keys, he just didn't have them. I, I remember whenever we had a big tent and we took the tent around the country to preach, he just arrived with his Bible to preach, that was it. Because everybody else did the work. And that's fair, that's fine, that's okay, that's what he was for, to preach the gospel and pray and do that. And so here is delegation, making sure that the people was in position to do the thing. So thank God for you who are doing the work, who are stuck in. I, I, I think there, this past few weeks, just as a wee example, I think of the shed outside for the youth now. And I, I come down one morning, I forget what morning it was, a couple of weeks ago, and I parked the car and I saw the, the, the door open of the shed and I went over and there was Gilbert up to his waist, with the floor ripped up, with a saw, cutting big chunks of wood out and putting new bits in, making the foundation, getting the preparation right. And Johnny and Tessa and Gilbert has done a fantastic job, and you'll, you'll see it some of these weeks, we'll show you, did a fantastic job of getting that whole thing done. It was hard work to do that, but they got it done, and got, uh, what they couldn't do, they got other people to come in and do. They paid other people to do, like electricians and things. So isn't it wonderful? Isn't it wonderful when you come in, it's all set up. Because people are playing their part. And whenever with this heaven's gates, hell's flames come, there's a great opportunity for you to roll up your sleeves and get stuck in and play your part and maybe see some family member come to Christ. That would even be wonderful. So Moses heeded the voice of his father-in-law, did all that he had said, and Moses chose able men out of all Israel and made them heads over the people, rulers of thousands, rulers of hundreds, rulers of fifties, rulers of tens. So they judged the people at all times, the hard cases they brought to Moses, but they judged every small case themselves. And Moses let his father-in-law depart, and he went his to his own land. So there's lessons, isn't there? In all of this, you see humility, you see leadership. And Moses was big enough or small enough to be able to say, Jethro, do you know what? You're absolutely right. It's right. and I'm going to do it. And he did it. And thank God he did it because he had a lot longer to live. And uh, we're going to be coming into, very shortly, and to Moses up the mountain. You know, he had up that mountain several times. He had up that mountain at least eight times, and he's 80 years old. <coughs> but the time he gets to the outskirts of the promised land, he's 120. It says his eye, he could still see, and his strength had not abated because he hadn't burnt himself out and worn himself out. Thank God he took the advice of Jethro. His father-in-law. And that set the scene for the rest of the journey. Amen? Let's pray. (coughs) Lord, we thank you for the examples that we read in your word. Because these things was for our admonition. For us to learn and to pay attention to. So help us, Lord, in all of our roles that we play in life to do it humbly, and to do it wisely. Forgive us for the times whenever we feel and we slip up. (coughs) Forgive us the times, Lord, whenever we feel prideful, (coughs) the times, Lord, when we mess up. Lord, we thank you that you're generous and you're loving and you're merciful. And we thank you that you do forgive us and you pick us up again so that we may stay in the race and run a race with perseverance, that we may win the prize. So we give you thanks for this, in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. We produce a variety of sermon videos and inspiring Christian content available for free on our YouTube channel. Just go to YouTube and search Moira Pentecostal or visit our website for more information www.mpc.org.uk